Well, thank you, worship team. It's been a, a joy just to, to sing already this night. And obviously, we call this Good Friday. Good Friday, because it is a Good Friday. I think out of maybe all the uh, items that we celebrate within the Christian church, certainly we will on Sunday and with Easter and certainly at Christmas Sunday on the birth of our Lord, I think this one just, I mean, you can't separate any of those, but Friday, the Good Friday, as the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for us, is indeed just a precious truth to us. And so I wanted to just say thank you for coming tonight. Our focus tonight is to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you're active in that. You've been singing. Uh, You'll listen to me as I just do a a devotion here. And then you'll be able to partake of communion. Of course, communion is for those who know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are believers, those who are Christians, those who have bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you, then we want you to partake of that tonight. If you're here and you're visiting and you're in town and you're not in Christ, listen, we're so glad that you've come. We would just ask that you let the cup and you let the plate, the bread, pass from you just as it comes down the aisle. This is for believers tonight. We won't embarrass you in any way. Nobody will even see that in the aisle. But for those of you who know the Lord you would be asked to just prepare your heart to remember his goodness to you, to remember his death on your behalf. And what I want to do tonight is invite you to look in your Bible to Mark chapter 15, as we've already read from the scripture. And I'd like to just examine two verses tonight as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table. It's in Mark 15, verse 33, When it says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's our text tonight. Just those two verses. I remind you as we step just into Mark 15 just briefly tonight as we prepare for the bread and the cup to be passed that here when you get to Mark chapter 15 we are past earlier we've come to the later part it's past our Lord's betrayal it would be after if you will his arrest it would be after his trial before the high priest his trial before Pilate, his trial after Herod, it's past that. This is past Peter's denial. This is past the cruel mockery of the Sanhedrin and the soldiers themselves. His scourging here to being condemned to death by crucifixion. Earlier in the Gospels, we know that he carried his own cross all the way to that place of the skull, to Golgotha. Simon of Cyrene, as you remembered, was pressed into service to carry the cross the rest of the way into that city. 
And you'll note if you're just there in Mark 15, if you back up to verse 25, it was the third hour in verse 25 when they crucified him. It's interesting with the gospel that Mark really declines. This is just what it says in 25. They crucified him. He declines the details of the crushing nails. He declines all the, if you will, the stretching of the limbs on the cross as he was lifted up and would be dropped into that place which would create excruciating pain. All he says, if you ever thought that in 1525, it says, when they crucified him. And I think there's a reason for that that I'll share in just a moment that Mark leaves any of the details out. Because even the excruciating pain of the crucifixion could not stop his or silence his repeated cries. In the other part of the gospel, as we're looking at Mark 15 and the other gospels, it tells us that even while he was on the cross, he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are, what? Doing. As, as he's on this cross, he's praying for them. And while he's on this cross, soldiers gambled for his clothes. And while he's on the cross, the Gospels say that the rulers shouted. And what they shouted is that he saved others, but he can't save whom? Himself. And their words were spoken as an insult, however, were the literal truth, because he could not save himself and save you simultaneously. And he chose to sacrifice himself in order to save you. Now, as we drop into Mark chapter 15, two thoughts maybe are just foremost in Mark's gospel in those verses. And maybe that's just my two words that I give to you tonight as we lead into communion. There is a word about judgment in verse 33. And then there is a word about separation. And it's my prayer that as we look at judgment, as we look at the word separation, that it would cause you to remember his death and cherish this night. You can't really get to Easter Sunday until we get to Good Friday, right? In fact, I would submit to you that though Easter Sunday is easier to wake up on on the, on the third day when he arose, there would be no resurrection apart from his death on the cross. So first, a word of judgment. A word of judgment. Look at the text in 33. It says, when the sixth hour had come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so just recognize that on that first Good Friday, there was darkness over the land. What's interesting about Good Friday and the theme of darkness and when our, is that when our Lord was born on that night sky around Bethlehem, it was filled with supernatural light. In fact, the The text in Luke says that the glory of the Lord shone all around him. In fact, when John the Baptist was introducing Christ to the world, 
he declared that Jesus Christ was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus himself, we know from John's wonderful gospel, said that I am the light of the world. But when you get to Good Friday, upon which we are here tonight, it says when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. Now you'll note if you look back in 16, excuse me, in 1525, it says that when they crucified him, it was the third hour. We know that the third hour is 9 a.m. And then when the darkness began on the cross, it was three hours later. And so from 9 to 12, he was upon that cross. And at 12, darkness came over the land. The reports that we can read in extra biblical literature suggest the darkness at Jesus' crucifixion was worldwide. There are people who have reported that in extra-biblical literature. There was also a report that came from Pilate to the emperor Tiberius that assumed that the emperor had knowledge of a widespread darkness, even mentioning that that darkness was from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. So there's darkness over the land. In fact, Luke describes the darkness with this Greek word, eklepo, which means it's the ideal of failing or ceasing to exist. We get our English word eclipse from that. And so during that three-hour period, Luke said in his gospel that the sun was obscured. So obviously, I think we understand that there was a physical darkness. But let me suggest to you tonight that that's not all the scriptures talk about. Certainly when it says there was darkness over the land, he's speaking that in a literal sense that from 12 to 3, darkness covered the land. But there's other scriptures that indicate that the crucifixion darkness was a mark of judgment for man's sinfulness and for man's rebellion. You don't have to look these, but look at these. But when Assyria was used by God to punish Israel, Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah chapter 5. He spoke of that judgment as darkness and distress that would cover the land. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. So in the Old Testament, when darkness was used, it was a sign of God's judgment. In fact, describing the day of the Lord in the book of Isaiah 13, you might remember this from the Olivet Discourse, it says in Isaiah 13 that the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their lights and that the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. God says, I will punish the world for its evil. So when God judges in those passages, it's a judgment upon the land. In fact, the prophet Joel, in Joel 2.2, wrote this regarding the coming day of the Lord. Of that coming day, he said it's a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. You can't get away from this. Amos, when he wrote, in chapter 5, said, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness 
instead of light. He said even gloom with no brightness in it. So again, it's a theme of judgment. Zephaniah said this in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Listen, he said the day of the Lord is a day of destruction, a day of darkness, and a day of gloom. It is a day of clouds. It is a day, it says, of thick darkness. So in those Old Testament passages, the judgment of God is associated with the darkness and sinfulness of man and God's judgment upon sin. You can't get around this in the New Testament. Oh, darkness fell over the land physically. But darkness was a symbol in the scripture of God's judgment. In fact, in the New Testament, Peter said, do you remember that scripture? That God cast the rebellious angels into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's what Peter said. Jesus, of course, frequently spoke of hell in these terms in Matthew chapter 8, that hell was a place of outer, what? Darkness. I think it's interesting that you remember that darkness spread over the land of Egypt before the first Passover and now before the ultimate Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ Darkness prevails again. So here, beloved, God's judgment is being poured out on the cross for your sin. He was your substitute for God's judgment on sin. And so if you just back up just for a moment as Jesus here in Mark 15 is on the cross. Look back at chapter 14. Let me show you something. Just turn back in one chapter in verse 33 when it says in 14.33 that he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly, it says there, distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even, he said, to death. In fact, it said in verse uh, 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that this hour might pass him up. Beloved, the anguish and the distress of the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient enough to kill him. In other words, just the agony that he bore in bearing your sin upon the cross is that the text says that he was sorrowful even to the point of death. And the agony he bore in the garden was literally on its way to killing him, is what Jesus said. You remember that in Luke's gospel, it describes that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so here he was in the garden, and he's sweating great drops of blood. It describes a condition known as hermatidrosis, and that is a condition that can incur when someone is under heavy, heavy emotional distress. They would say that in that condition, the subcutaneous capillaries burst under the stress, and the blood mingles with one's perspiration exiting through the sweat glands. And so there he was in the garden, 
and he's praying, but as he's praying, it's mingled, if you will, with great drops of blood. And so before he cried out in our passage in verse 34, the other gospels state that he cried out. And do you remember his prayer that, Lord, if it's possible, let this, what, cup pass from me. And you might ask again, what is the cup that he must drink? Uh, Certainly, the cup is not the physical pain of the cross. It is not the torture by the soldiers. Our Lord doesn't fear those things. The cup, beloved, was a very well-known Old Testament symbol of divine wrath against sin. In fact, it, it speaks of language like this in Isaiah 51, 17. Oh, Jerusalem, you have drunk, it says, at the hand of the Lord and the cup of his fury. It says in Isaiah 51, 17, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. So it was a cup of judgment. In fact, it says in Jeremiah 25, 15, Take this wine, and then he says, the cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So, beloved, it's very clear here when you look at both the darkness and you look at the cup, it is a symbol of the judgment that God forces the wicked to drink. And so when our Lord referred to the cup, and when he prayed, if it were possible, to let this cup pass from me, He spoke of drinking the cup of the divine judgment of God for the sins of the world. It's an incredible thought in the text here. Incredible. The cross, beloved, as we come to communion in a moment, was the place of judgment. Was the place of judgment where your sins, my sins, were placed upon Christ as he stands in your place as your substitute. So darkness falls on the land. And rather than the cup passing from him, he drinks the cup. The darkness comes because of the judgment of God upon sin. He drinks the cup of the fury of God's wrath against sin. And I would say to you that the raw horror of such darkness, the raw horror of such judgment of God for sin should cause you to worship Him tonight. He did all this for you. You can't get to good, you can't get to Easter until we have Good Friday. And Friday's good because the, ju- the judgment that we deserved and the wrath we deserved fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so darkness covers the land and He drinks that cup. But judgment gives way to a second word and We'll finish with this in Mark 15. It's just the word separation. Where at the ninth hour he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I might have shared with you before that the mystery of this verse was so great that Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a length of time to understand the depth of such a scripture. But they say when he came back, he was more confused than when he began. Now listen, I do not claim to understand the depth of this passage, but allow me just to explain it as best as I can see it. Listen, what what does that mean? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
let me just acknowledge that it is not death itself that caused him distress. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, because it says that he came to die all throughout John's gospel. John 12, 27 says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. The reason that he was born is he was born to die. He was born, if you will, to take your judgment. He was born to take the darkness, if you will, that resided in our heart because of God's holiness and his judgment against sin. But here, what does it mean when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, in some way, I think beyond our infinite or beyond our finite comprehension, Our Lord was separated from his father as the wrath of God was poured out upon his sinless son. And I would say that the physical agony was nothing in comparison to the sin that caused wave after wave of divine judgment and now separation to place him utterly alone on that cross. Listen, it's Good Friday. And for that moment in time, in some way, that perfect, unbroken fellowship that God the Father had with God the Son from all eternity was separated, if you will. I mean, beloved, how great would be our Lord's rejection. Think about it in this way. He came into his own and his own, what? Rejected him. His own did not receive him. All the disciples even as he was about his trial, had turned and fled. He's there alone on the cross as Peter had denied him three times. The religious leaders brutally mocked him. They spit upon him. They scourged him. The soldiers pummeled him with their fist. But listen, as difficult as that would have been, in some measure, in some way, his father turns and forsakes him. We know from the scripture that the father must abandon him momentarily as he bears the sins of, his, of the world upon his shoulders. Sproul put it this way, that he is now polluted with the cumulative filth of the sin he bears for the sheep. And as Jesus bore the guilt of your sins, God the Father, creator, Lord of the universe, poured out on his holy begotten son the full fury of his wrath. It's incredible. There's darkness, but the darkness came because it was God's judgment upon the world and God's judgment upon his son. Separation happens because as he takes upon your sin on the cross. God the Father must turn, if you will, his holy gaze from his son as he bears the weight of that sin. I I saw a a clip this week, and it was of the movie of the crucifixion. And there it was, was the actor. wasn't even during the movie. It was obviously offset. And Mel Gibson was sitting in just a seat with uh, Jesus in the movie, and they just took a picture of it. There's the producer with the actor, and they had a portrait of Jesus just covered in blood. And, and it would be hard to say that the crucifixion wasn't something like that. But I, but I thought to myself, there he was, 
producer and actor. And the actor obviously had a bunch of makeup on to cover what that scene must have, what they thought looked like. But I would submit to you that that's not the worst part. The worst part was not what the soldiers did. It's not what Pilate did. It's not that the disciples fled. It's not that Peter denied him. It's that on that cross, as darkness fell, the wrath of God was being poured out upon His Son. And as it was being poured out upon His Son for your son, for your sin, it created separation, if you will, momentarily from the God of the universe. What a, what a scene. GCV, I would say to you that at that moment, in my opinion, is the greatest moment in the history of the world. Now, you might say, well, what about his birth? And I understand. You might say, well, what about his resurrection? I understand. But listen, we have the wonderful privilege tonight to remember his death. He died for you. He died for your sins. God's wrath, which should have been spent on you, was poured out on him. He went to that cross and bore the penalty of your sin. And God Almighty, beyond just the physical torture that Christ experienced, here was the greatest moment in the history of the world. As God took and spent that wrath and put it on His Son. Listen, this is just the truth. Justice would not be winked at. And sin would be punished fully in the person of Christ. And Jesus at that moment became the object of the intense hatred of sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. And so he says, my God, my God, why have you left me? Now, you say, well, what do you mean? How did he leave him? Well, Jesus certainly knew that he was leaving the world And that it says in John 14 that he was going to the Father. He knew that. He knew, according to all the Gospels, multiple times that he would rise again. He wasn't thinking this is eternal separation. But the cry was from the depths of his heart as God's wrath was spent on him. And as Jesus knew the end of his suffering was near, he knew that God's anger and the awful heaviness of sin was being removed, and with a shout of victory, Jesus cried out in John's gospel, it is what? Finished. I love that word there, finished. It's to telestai, and it was used in the business world to signify that the final payment has been made. It, it signified that the account had been paid in full. So, beloved, listen, this is Good Friday. And it's Good Friday because the cross was God's divine plan to remove our judgment and the separation that our sin creates in order to bring us to God. Listen, what a privilege to be here. There's no other place I'd rather be than with you tonight to sing, than to come and let the bread pass amongst us and to let the cup to remember what our Lord did. Oh, yes, he died. Oh, yes, he was tortured. Oh, yes, he was spit upon. Oh, yes, he was mocked. Oh, yes, they fled. Oh, yes, Peter denied him. But listen, 
far greater than that loneliness was the loneliness that he bore in perfect relationship with his father as he took your sin. Isaiah said it this way, and he predicted it this way. In Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sin of many. That's what he was doing on Good Friday. It's Good Friday. Do you remember in Isaiah, and I think you probably know it by heart, surely our griefs he himself, what? Bore. Our sorrows he, what? Carried. He was pierced through for our, what? Transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are, what? Healed. He did all of this for you. In fact, Peter just puts it this way as we come to the table. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore your sins. He bore your judgments. He bore your penalty. He bore the wrath that you deserved and I deserved that we might, Peter says in that same verse, die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you were, what? Healed, 1 Peter 2.24. In fact, it says in 1 Peter 1.18 that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What a precious truth. You remember in John's gospel, John the Baptist Solomon, he said the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, Good Friday is good because Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 2, 7, became obedient to the point of death, even death, what? On a cross for you. In fact, Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. And so he did all of this for you. You know, it's interesting when we were reading earlier that it was on the cross that the centurion in 1539 who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You know what's amazing about that? That's the first declaration of anybody who's a Gentile in Mark's gospel claiming who he was. It's the first declaration. The centurion got it right at the very end of the gospel that this was the Son of God. And so we come tonight to remember his death, to remember the darkness beyond just the physical of what he did. And here to remember the cup, not just a literal cup, but the cup, the symbol of his judgment poured out. And he did all of that for you. I just, as I was worshiping this week, I just, I couldn't get this out of my mind of what he's done for us, of what he's done for you, and that it's, a, it's availed to the world and we have a responsibility to tell it. But here tonight, we're proclaiming, Paul said in Corinthians 11, his death until he comes again. 